You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello, and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Diane Brady. Along with ushering in a global pandemic, 2020 was another record year for global temperatures. But in Washington, D.C. and beyond, there's a renewed sense of urgency to do something about it. I'm joined today by two colleagues who've created a detailed roadmap for what actions need to happen to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Kimberly Henderson is a partner in McKinsey's sustainability practice in Washington, D.C. And Krister Trigestad, a senior partner in Oslo, is a leader in McKinsey's oil and gas and electric power and natural gas practices. Kimberly and Krister, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Diane. Kimberly, let's start by explaining why 1.5 degrees Celsius is so critical. Sure thing. So, Diana, if you think about how climate change will progress, there are obviously a number of events that will become more severe and more frequent. So that includes wildfires. It includes hurricanes, severe storms, um, drought, flooding, high temperature. Um, so those events will will progress over time, and, and we would expect to see them becoming more and more severe. And so there's one aspect of limiting climate change that is purely limiting the severity and the frequency of these extreme events. Um, however, there are also fundamental changes in the Earth system that we're seeing. And these are called climate feedbacks. And essentially what's happening is that climate change is triggering certain changes on planet Earth that then will lead to more climate change. And so it becomes almost a vicious cycle. And these feedbacks um, have increasingly high risk of happening the higher the temperature level is. 1.5 degrees is considered um, likely to stabilize the climate and limit these feedbacks. But if, if we see temperature levels much beyond that, it's likely we would trigger multiple of these feedbacks. So to, to bring these, should I bring these to life a little bit for you of what, what kinds of things could happen? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess one of the questions that really, to some extent, people aren't clear as to whether we've reached a point of no return or what 1.5 degrees will look like. Is it more of the same? So there will be some climate change at this point, no matter what we do. Um, so we, we have seen 1.1 degrees of global warming already. Um, and we're already seeing the implications of that. And so at 1.5 degrees, we could still expect to see more climate change. But it's a matter of degree, um, and it's it's a question of risk level. And again, I think it's important to understand these feedbacks um, because they're things like losing our forests. If we lose our forests, which would happen at higher climate change levels, that will cause more global warming, and it will be self-reinforcing. Um, similarly, losing ice cover, that warms the earth. And so that global warming, which is leading to the ice loss, could then drive further global warming. And so that's what we really want to avoid. We, we want to be able to stabilize the climate. And at a certain level, we would lose the ability to do that. But now we still have the capacity to stabilize the climate and 1.5 degrees gives us the best chance to do that. Krista, I'd like to 
talk in some ways about your background because I'm I'm used to talking about these issues through sort of sustainability, renewable energy. Um, you lead oil and gas practices. Can you talk a little bit about how the priorities are playing out there? Yeah, I'm very happy to do that, uh, Diane. So the sustainability trend um, hit actually both the oil and gas and the power industries uh, so, some time ago. Uh, if you look at the drivers of climate change, uh, energy is, is, is a very important part of that. 70-75% of emissions are related to, to energy. Uh, for the power, the electric power industry, actually we saw the change starting quite a few years ago with uh, incumbent power companies shifting their portfolios away from the more traditional coal and gas burning towards uh, renewables, mainly uh, solar and, and, and wind power. And we also saw a, a series of new entrants moving into the solar and wind development space. Uh, and, and what we're now seeing is the, you can almost say the next, uh, next wave of that, which is more focused on uh, storage and, and hydrogen, clean hydrogen, often green hydrogen, uh, as the new growth avenues for, for power companies that want to uh, I would say, ma ma make a business and, and, and create value based on the sustainability trend. For the oil and gas industry, um, the trend is a little bit newer, but it's, uh, it's happening, especially, I would say, with, uh, with many of the European uh, oil and gas companies that are now making significant uh, shifts in their portfolios, uh, and, and many of them are entering renewable power generation with, with quite, some, uh, quite some force. What's motivating that? Is it public pressure? I think it's a combination of, of various things and, uh, and public uh, pressure and, and reputation uh, certainly could be a driver, but I, I think many of these companies would not do anything uh, unless they also see a clear business rationale for doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, so they clearly see good value creation opportunities related to, to renewable energy. Kimberly, I, I want to talk about the study that um, that you both worked on, but to tell me about the research in terms of the sectors you looked at and and what levers really are critical. Uh, sure thing. So we looked at every sector that generates greenhouse gas emissions um, directly. So we looked at uh, the oil and gas industry, cement, steel, mining. Uh, we looked at agriculture. We looked at power, of course, um, all types of transport. So we covered the full suite of industries that are significant greenhouse gas emitters. And what we did was we worked with our experts in each of these sectors, and because we work with each of these sectors in our client work, to determine what is the pathway for each sector that would be consistent with the 1.5 degree pathway and what needs to happen technically to get there. And so what measures can each industry, each company take um, to reduce their emissions? And when we stepped back and we looked across all industries, we found that there were uh, 10 things that, the, that need to happen that would lead us, that could lead us to a zero carbon economy. And so there's this one category that's around demand. Another is on how we power and fuel our lives. And this is what people often think of and, and much of what Krista spoke to. So how we power and fuel our lives in, includes electrification, so electrifying our transport systems and industry and buildings, 
It includes the renewables adoption, which we already see renewables at scale, but we need them at much greater scale for a 1.5 degree pathway. It includes hydrogen um, that's produced in a low carbon way and bioenergy. And so that's, that are, that's all the things that need to happen on powering and fueling our lives differently. There's a, an additional category in managing carbon. So uh, we need carbon capture for certain industries um, to capture carbon at the point where it's emitted and then either store it underground or use it um, in a product. Uh, we also need to start managing the carbon balance in the atmosphere. And that means taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. Um, the, the easiest way to do that is reforestation. You know, plants absorb carbon. And so if we reforest uh, and areas of the earth, that will help reduce the CO2. Would, would you call this, and I'm going to ask Krista actually, from the oil and gas perspective, would you call this aspirational or doable? This is, well, go ahead, Krista. <laughs> <laughs> so I think one of, one of the main findings from our work is that it is technically it's feasible. Uh, so, so we've shown by, by this bottom-up segment-by-segment analysis that it is actually feasible to get there. At the same time, it's extremely challenging. And this is sort of policy initiatives, but, but when you look across your sector, Christopher, to start, what are you seeing in terms of where the energy is being placed in terms of these levers? So when I look at what companies are doing, uh, I, I think there are, there are several things. So first, many of the oil and gas companies, they address their own uh, emissions from, from their the core operations. So being it, up, uh, for example, upstream oil and gas, where they, they do measures to reduce CO2 emissions related to, uh, to that production. So that, that, that is one area, one set of, uh, of measures. The, the other thing is that we see a change of portfolio. So moving away from the fuels that, that have a significant impact on climate change, uh, heavy oils, for example, towards cleaner uh, fuels like uh, or, or cleaner types of energy or uh, like uh, renewable uh, power. So those are two main steps we see. Go ahead, Kimberly. Diane, I, I want to come back to the point made previously, though, about policy, mm -hmm. because I think it's important to understand that the private sector actions will largely be dictated by policy, or at least mm -hmm. enabled by policy. So policy and regulation is, is critical to achieving a pathway, anything like this. And that is because... Without policy, a lot of the decisions that need to be made aren't economic. And so for companies to reduce their emissions, for instance, um, there's a better business case if there's some sort of a consequence from having those emissions, which in many parts of the world right now there is not. Right. Um, or if you want to build a new business, for that business to make money, there needs to be a policy or regulatory framework that, that allows for that. And in many of these technology areas, if, let's take carbon capture, for instance, that is a pure cost. So unless there is some sort of regulation or subsidy or incentive or tax, carbon capture will not make sense as a new business model. And so this is a critical enabler that I just want to make it clear that it's inseparable from the private sector actions. Well, it almost reminds me a bit of uh, the ethanol debate that um, 
people used to have. And I, I want to go through the categories because reforming food and forestry is the first shift. Kimberly, talk about that because we do focus a lot on energy, but that's clearly a huge area as well. Yeah, so I'll, I'll take the two pieces in turn. So for forestry, uh, what we find in our analysis is that for this pathway, 1.5 degrees, we would need to stop deforestation, um, which which right now we deforest an area about the size of Greece globally every year. And we would need to reforest a large area. In our analysis, by 2030, we would need to reforest an area the size of Turkey. Um, so that is a significant change in how we manage our forests and, and how we support forest growth. So when you say Turkey relative to Greece, is that essentially that we have to be planting a lot more than we're taking out? Yes. We need to essentially stop deforesting. And the area we're deforesting every year, we should be thinking about reforesting an area that scale every year. So it's a reversal um, in, in what's what we're doing today. Where are some of the biggest problem areas with food? We hear a lot about factory farms, for example, but that's from a consumer perspective. From the business perspective, where are the challenges? So for food, the biggest climate challenge in the food space is methane. So it's not CO2, it's methane. Cows. Um, yes. <laughs> so within food and agriculture, cows are the primary source of methane. Rice production also generates methane and any food waste generates methane. Um, but cows are the biggest part of the problem. And if you were to take the global population of cows and assume that they are a country in themselves, so you have a country of cows, that country would be one of the top three greenhouse gas emitting countries in the world. And so to give you a sense of scale, you know, cows themselves on the planet are generating emissions roughly on par with the United States. So this is a major source of greenhouse gases that would need to be reduced. Uh, there are some technical measures to help reduce that. Um, so certain breeding and genetic selection, um, methane inhibitors, uh, feed mix additives. That said, for the reduction in methane that we'd likely need to see, we would expect to, to probably need a reduction in beef consumption. But for rice, are we asking people to consume less rice as well? No, with rice, there's probably changes in production methods that could help um, help reduce methane and help redu reduce uh, greenhouse gases. So. And Christer, talk about electrification. Yes. So electrification, that's the second major shift that we, we see required to reach the, uh, the one and a half degree uh, pathway. And, and, and when we talk about electrifying our lives, we, we basically talk about two uh, end-use segments. We talk about the road transport and, and buildings. Road transport today is roughly 15% of CO2 emissions. And by electrifying uh, that, uh, that segment together, of course, then with uh, greener electricity through renewables, you can significantly uh, reduce or, and almost eliminate uh, those emissions. That's Similar, electric cars. That's electric cars, it's trucks, it's buses, three-wheelers, etc., etc. So all, all road transport, if you want. 
The, the, the second element is, is around buildings, uh, where another 5 to 8% of the uh, global emissions comes from heating, whether it's space heating, water heating, etc., all related to, to buildings. And, and by moving from whatever source of energy, for example, gas, uh, towards electricity, and again, clean electricity, you can uh, then eliminate those, uh, those uh, 5 to 8% as well. And the third shift, Kimberly, adapting industrial operations. Now, that sounds very iterative, is it? What do you mean by iterative? That, uh, well, it's, is it basically doing small fix? Is it a, basically greater efficiencies is the way that I think about that shift? No. So efficiency is part of it. It's not only about efficiency. So... To Krista's point on electrification, there is huge electrification potential in the industrial sectors now. Um, things that are are currently uh, using fossil fuels could be switched to electricity and switched to clean electricity. So that's one part of the, the industrial transition that needs to happen. Efficiency is, of course, part of it. Improving energy efficiency, recycling. So steel recycling will be very important to reducing emissions. Um, process optimization. Uh, so... There's, there's an efficiency component here that is critical for certain industries. And then the other category is on methane, uh, which we talked about in regards to cows, but the other major source of methane is the fossil fuel value chain. And it is the production of oil and gas and coal, and then the, the transport and distribution and storage, particularly of gas, that generates methane. And those industries would need to take measures to control that methane and reduce those emissions. I wanted both of you to take us to the front lines to what people are telling you in the business sector, since every part of the economy really needs to decarbonize to get to this pathway. Are you finding a lot more interest, especially given the current climate realities we're facing? I'll start with you, Kimberly. Yes, I think private sector decision makers largely understand this. Um, the, I think Krista mentioned the pressure around climate change is growing, and that's coming from a number, a number of places. That's public pressure. That's pressure from investors, pressure from regulators, pressure from customers. So increase, and those could be consumers, but also business customers. Um, increasingly, we see companies asking their supply chain to become zero carbon. And if you take an automotive company, for instance, they can have thousands or tens of thousands of suppliers that they are now asking to become zero carbon. And so I think in the private sector, you know, it, it's, it's now become part of mainstream thinking that we will need to decarbonize. I think the question people are still grappling with is the speed, the scale, how to make the business cases work. Um, so it's, it's not clear exactly what, what needs to be done when for everyone. But I think that the realization that this will be an imperative for pretty much every industry is there. The answer to your question, I would say definitely, as I see all my clients now uh, quite focused on sustainability topics. And uh, th there is two elements. So one is uh, almost a an intention of making the, the businesses more robust towards future regulation, future consumer demands. Uh, and the second is uh, pursuing uh, growth opportunities, value creation opportunities. 
And of course, the fact that uh, the technology cost is, is going down, as you indicate, that makes it easier uh, for, for, for many companies to, to both take the protective measures and, and also to pursue uh, interesting value creation opportunities. And I, th- I think, Diane, if you think about cost, uh, there's a few aspects that companies think about, right? So there's the cost of the measures that they implement themselves, which for renewables, for instance, renewables are very competitive now. So that's a viable option for, for most, of, if not or many companies. But then there's also profit, a profit question. And when Krista talks about diversification and what new industries companies want to play in, that that's that's a different question is oh, can we make money and so those are two two very separate questions that companies are grappling with so christer we are in the middle of a global pandemic with covid-19 how does that affect the discussions around this or ability to do it yeah so so it is clear that now a, a lot of public attention and I would say government measures are focused on handling COVID and, and rightfully so. Uh, and, and for many countries and, and regions, you, you would also see that the financial headroom to address the climate challenge will be reduced for years to come. At, at the same time, I do see COVID as an opportunity as well to address climate change. For the first, uh, you could say that the crisis itself has significantly reduced CO2 emissions in the short term. Uh, And and while many of these or much of these emissions will come back, our research also showed that uh, there will be a net negative effect from uh, from COVID also in the the longer term. Secondly, and, and maybe most importantly, the restart of the economies that are now needed is also a very good opportunity uh, to incentivize many of the green investments that are required to drive the an accelerated transition towards uh, 1.5 uh, 5 degree. And, and also many of these investments into green technology on, on average will have a relatively high employment per uh, invested dollar compared to many, many other investments. And, and, and finally, you could also say that the, if there's one thing the COVID crisis have shown us, it's, it's that uh, societies are able and willing uh, to take dramatic measures uh, in, in the face of, of a crisis. And, and I would say there's a little bit of comfort in that as well. I think COVID-19 has also helped to shatter some status quo bias, because I think for, in climate change for a long time, many people just found it hard to imagine what climate change will really mean and and what the risk is and how bad it could be for human society because we've never seen anything like it before. And I think the pandemic has opened people's eyes that there could be these exogenous shocks, these exogenous risks that um, that they completely change how we need to operate as a society and what we need to do. Um, and it, it I think that the pandemic has kind of opened up the aperture of, of the risks that people are willing to consider and, and start to prepare against. When we think about the magnitude of this problem, it almost induces an existential angst that there's so little we can do. How optimistic are each of you that that we can make real progress here? Kimberly? So I'm actually very optimistic. I think technically we know what to do, and this is solvable. 
know, some people seem to think that we need to go create, invent new things and it will be a genius in a lab that solves this. That's, that's not needed, actually. We, we have the technologies we need. We need to scale them. We need to get the cost down. Um, but, but we are technically able to, to tackle this problem. Um, what we need is a step change in willpower uh, to get there. And so I would, for people who feel anxious or worried, I think now is a time to actually feel empowered and that this is a moment for leadership. Um, the 2020s are a pivotal decade, which will determine the future of the planet and the future of human society. And the decisions made now really matter. And so for people worried about climate change, they should be making different decisions and seeking to influence decisions that are being made in the world by public sector, private sector. Um, now is the time to really drive this change. And again, it, it can be done. It just requires a, a lot of action and a very short time frame. Krister, in Europe, the thinking seems to be further along on this. Yeah. So, so to your question, am I optimistic? I, I, I think it is important to underline that when we talk about the 1.5 degree scenario, the, the challenge of getting there is, uh, is tremendous. Uh, we're talking about net zero emissions by, uh, by 2050, which is in itself a, a big task. Even more challenging is, is the fact that we need to reduce by more than 50% over the next 10 years. So, and that's practically tomorrow when we talk about uh, emissions from many of the processes that, 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 that we're currently looking at. What still gives me some uh, optimism is the fact that uh, I see a lot of momentum right now. If you look at, uh, as I said, I work a lot in the, the oil and gas industry, and if you, if you look at uh, how oil companies are talking about this topic uh, compared to only a year uh, ago, it's fundamentally different, uh, at least for, from Europe, as you point to. And I see that trend accelerating, uh, and it's driven also by, by economics. So I think we will, we will continue to see that acceleration, whether that will take us to 1.5, uh, m- maybe not, but will at least take us a lot closer than, uh, than current uh, business as usual or reference cases uh, would indicate, which is uh, far, far from the 1.5 or even far from the 2.0 uh, scenarios. Kimberly and Krister, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Diane. Thank you, Diane. That was Kimberly Henderson and Krister Trigestad. If you'd like to see more research on the 1.5 degree pathway, please go to McKinsey.com. I'm Diane Brady. You've been listening to the McKinsey podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at McKinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.